This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So we're hoping to discuss why it's important to plan for the future and what happens if we don't. Discuss important components to the future planning for health care, finances, and other decisions. And we're going to talk about uh, three resources that we think are helpful for planning for the future. So with that, let's start off with the first question. Like, why is this important? Why is it important to plan for health and illness? I have a mic. Sarah, if you want to... Do you want me to field and you'll run? Field. Eric's going to run. I'll field. Why is it important to plan for uh, health and illness? Who has experience planning for health and illness? Anyone? Okay, yay, we have a couple. Would you be willing to talk about why why it may be important? You don't have to. I don't really know where to begin, um, but basically uh, you do not know. For instance, we are on a 20-year plan, and my husband says it's a five-year plan that's renewable every five years, hopefully. hopefully. Uh, and you don't really know what is in store for you. Yes, you have a history. Your, your parents have a history. Your family has a history. But you don't know if you're going to be run over by a truck tomorrow or whether you're going to live to be 105. And so one of the things that we have done is to basically make certain that we do a lot of the exercises that are necessary to keep us as in good a physical shape, you know, muscularly as possible to uh, follow up on anything that happens medically. So if we're noticing something, a change, we go and find out whether it's something that's important. But you just don't know, and you need the money. That's another thing. (laughs) Great. So there's a lot of uncertainty over the future. You really don't know, but it sounds like there's other concerns, like you need the money to plan for the future. And it's important to, to plan how am I doing right now, and potentially, like, what if something does happen? Have we thought about that? Other thoughts on that question? Why is it important? Well, you need something or someone to take over if uh, certain procedures need to be taken. You know, uh, What kind of health care do you want? Do you want to... Um, have everything um, you don't want to go on, you know, for life support or whatever. Those are all important. So great. So if you have specific preferences about, let's say, certain health care procedures, if you were very sick, things that you would want or don't want, you may want to actually make sure that people know those preferences and maybe also who, who's going to help make decisions when that time comes. Maybe one more. Any, anything from this side of the room? Well, I don't think it's important to plan for your future for health and illness. If, if you don't plan for your health and illness, things will happen. Yeah. But if you want to look out for financial resources, if you want your wishes to be respected, and if you want to avoid the burden falling on others then you better plan for the future. I'll pay you $20 after we're done with this talk. Here's our plant. I think that you just summarized everything that we were going to talk about. So thank you very much. So all really important parts. Like 
yeah, you, you don't need to. There's no requirement that you plan for the future. But if you want your health care preferences, if you have them honored, if you want, people, you want people to know what your values are, what's important to you, what makes you tick, what you're worried about, it's important to actually document that. And if you're concerned about things like finances, if something does happen, if you got in an accident in the street tonight, and you were in, you were sick in the hospital on a breathing machine, even for a short period of time, who's going to pay your bills? Who has access to that? All of these things are important things to think about. You don't have to do it, but we're going to talk about why we think it's important. And I just wanted to add something that I loved about what you said, which is that, you know, it's a five-year plan renewable. So we don't know what the future looks like. And so we think of planning as an ongoing process and not just something we do want. So I really love that you brought up that point as well. And what I often hear, too, is, oh, you know, when the time comes, I'll make that decision. Like, it's okay. I think the key is if we look at the data on healthcare decisions near the end of life is that surrogate decision makers or people other than the patient are the ones that make nearly half of all major medical decisions for hospitalized older adults. So, and the other important part is decisions to withdraw life-sustaining treatments, like being put on a breathing machine, is just one of the many decisions that surrogates, these oftentimes family members, need to make for these older adults. So what I like to think about it, it's not what to do if someone needs to make decisions for you, but what to do when they make decisions for you. And are we adequately preparing these people to actually make these decisions? Do our loved ones know what we want, what makes us tick, what's important to us? More so than just individual preferences. So other question for the audience. Let's say something does happen. Who has the authority to make healthcare decisions for you if you can't? And how do they get it? Anybody know? Guesses are fine. Doctor. So your doctor. Okay, one one for the doctor. Your attorney. Your attorney. <laughs> Spouse. Spouse. Advanced directive. An advanced directive assigns it. Yeah, an advanced directive. My oldest son. Advanced directive. Advanced directive. Any other options? Next of kin. Next of kin. Oh, yeah. Sarah, is there a right answer to this one? There is. So it depends on the state in which you are receiving care. Um, but generally, in, in California, um, healthcare providers will turn to your family members. And if you haven't planned ahead, your family members won't know which of them is responsible for making decisions. So there's four ways uh, of thinking about who can make decisions. And we think about it in terms of the four Ds. So directed, um, delegated, devolved, displaced. There will be a quiz later. (laughs) 
Um, so the first is directed. And so that's the idea that you can always, on your own, make your own healthcare decisions as long as you have the ability to do that. And your healthcare providers can and should be turning to you first to try, right, to ask you what you would want. Um, the second is someone who is appointed by you. So that is someone uh, who is a healthcare agent who is legally uh, appointed and a durable power of attorney. Devolved uh, refers to this idea that if you haven't uh, appointed someone, your next of kin can make decisions. We actually don't have a hierarchy in California. We're one of the states that doesn't have that. And so normally health providers will just turn to the family that is available um, and try and get some consensus among uh, family members. In other states, there's an official hierarchy that they will follow uh, in order uh, to figure out who makes decisions. And then finally is displaced. So if you don't have any of the above, a court uh, can make decisions for you. Someone will have to petition the court um, and get a guardian or a conservator who can make decisions. Uh, I heard doctor and lawyer potentially options for making decisions. Is that a thing? No, unless the doctor is a family member um, or unless the lawyer is a family member. Um, a lawyer, a doctor, if it's your treating physician, cannot make health decisions for you or if they're employed by the facility where you live or get care. Um, a lawyer might be able to make health care decisions for you, but if they're the person helping you with your documents, they might not be comfortable doing that. We have questions. Yeah. Uh, I have heard uh, that if you, let's say I was to go into the hospital, I am in a coma, and uh, uh, my whoever has my directive is asked uh, what I want, and I, I don't want, I want end of life. I just, I just want to be gone if, if I can't. But I've heard that if I'm in the hospital, they're going to try to do everything to keep me alive, and that the only way to basically not have any care is for the person that I have directed that let me go uh, is to get me out of the hospital. Is that a problem today here in California? I will, I will let Eric talk about the realities on the ground, um, but I can tell you that legally, if you have an advanced directive that says that you would not want kind of a a DNR, if you describe in a living will or a pulse or another document, and we'll define all of these terms in a little bit, um, then your healthcare surrogate can help advocate for those wishes, and the healthcare team should respect them as your wishes. But you do need something in place, and we have lots of drivers in both the healthcare system and the law that default toward treatment. Um, because, well, I'll let Eric talk about why, but we'd rather err on the side of sustaining someone if we're not sure what to do. So do you want to weigh in on that, Eric? Yeah. I, I also, I really like to think about these four Ds. The, the first one is exactly what you're saying. I have these preferences. I've put it in a formal document saying that if I had an irreversible terminal issue, uh, um, terminal disease, or if I was in an irreversible coma, I wouldn't want these things. These are common words that we'll see in the hospital. The challenge is, even when you say that in an advanced directive, on the ground as a doctor, I have to interpret what does it mean to be in an irreversible or terminal state. Let's say you have advanced dementia, irreversible, Alzheimer's disease. We don't have a cure for it. We have nothing to reverse it. 
But let's say you get hospitalized because of heart failure and you end up in the ICU. I can reverse that. I can make it better, potentially. Not always. And with advanced dementia, probably not a whole lot better. But am I now, is, what am I dealing with? So there's a judgment issue when it comes to these adva- advanced directives, how to actually interpret it, unless it's rock solid. No matter what happens, I absolutely would never want to be put on a breathing machine. No matter what, I don't give anybody leeway to make any decisions other than never put me back on a breathing machine. But even that gets a little complicated because, for instance, we had somebody who was very clear and then was on a bus, like an, like an outing with the rest of a group, and like choked on a ham sandwich. Like, I'm pretty sure that was not part of their decision. They, they had cancer. They didn't want to be put on a breathing machine because of their cancer, but they weren't thinking they would choke on a ham sandwich. So everything requires interpretation and judgment, usually. And I think that's where, when the rubber meets the road, that's the challenging part of this. And I think the second thing I'd like, I'm going to bring back to Sarah about this being a process. Because your wishes now may be different than your wishes when you have a serious illness. So it's always about, it's never just about getting one form done and finishing. It's about the cycle of always reappraising. What are my current values? What's important to me? What's important to me if I got very sick? And what's important to me changes depending on my life events. What's happening to me? What's happening to my family? Saw another question or raised hands? I just wanted to double check that you're not saying that the doctor won't do anything if there's no surrogate in the room. So the, the question is, will a doctor not do anything if there's nobody there in the room? So the default in our system is to do everything we can to keep you alive, no matter what the cost. And that's cost not just financial cost, But that's cost as far as doing a lot of aggressive invasive procedures to keep people alive, no matter if they're having a lot of pain or suffering. So that is the default. If you, if if your loved ones, something were to happen in the hospital, we will do everything to keep them alive. The problem is when you ask most people what's important to them if they had, let's say, an advanced illness. Some people would say, what's most important to me is that default. Keep me alive, no matter what the cost. Most people won't say that, though. So how do we respect the wishes of most people when they're facing, let's say, a serious illness? When the default is for the minority of people that want everything done. And I think that is, and I would say everything done to keep them alive. We can do everything done to keep people comfortable um, with a serious illness. Um, and we can do everything done for a lot of different goals. Um, but the, the challenge is, is that there, there is one default in the hospital. And that's that full court press to keep people alive, no matter what the cost. So the power, the, the designated power of attorney is the way you get around that? So there's a couple ways. So the, these are the four Ds. There's, there's a couple ways that what happens if you weren't there awake. Because the, the, the key is also if somebody has 
is in front of you and they can tell you what they want and they have the ability to do so, we rely on that. So if I ended up in the hospital, I can make decisions for myself right now. And I, let's say I couldn't when I ended up in the hospital, I'm the one guiding my treatment plan. If I don't have the ability, we go to the four D's. The first is, did they ever actually write anything, an advanced directive telling us exactly what they wanted in this situation? The problem with this is, most of the time, it talks about vagaries and never about, oh, this exact situation. I would say rarely do I see one that applies to this exact situation. I think it's great when they do, but it's really hard because... It's hard to think what will happen into the future and all the possibilities. So if there's no advanced directive, we go to the appointed surrogate decision maker. So you said, I want my wife, I want my brother, I want my friend, I want, um, we've had people say, I want my bartender. Like, whoever you trust to make these medical decisions for you, we go to that person as assigned in a document called the Durable Power of Attorney for Healthcare. That's that person that we go to, or we should go to. If they don't have this, and this is part of many um, uh, legal frameworks for, uh, and we'll talk about the different um, terms for it. If they don't have that, we go to, oh, we, we don't have any paperwork telling us what they want. We don't have any paperwork telling us who they want to make decisions. We're going to go to the devolved, or in our state, or in our policy, like, who... Who should the first person be? And like Sarah said, we have a patchwork of laws in the United States. If I was in Hawaii, it would be all interested parties should be able to make these decisions. In California, no hierarchy, right? No hierarchy. In some states, hierarchy. If you're a veteran and you live in California, if you get admitted to the UC hospital, there is no hierarchy. If you get admitted to the VA, we have a hierarchy that goes from spouse to child. So it works all the way through the system, all the way down to friend. I find that actually kind of useful to have because it helps us think about this. But sometimes you may not like your brother or your sister. You may want your friend to make decisions for you. And that's a, a challenge. And if you don't even have this, if you have what we call, some people call unbefriended or unrepresented older adults, you end up in an emergency room. You can't make decisions for you. You have no advanced directive. You have no durable power of attorney for healthcare saying, this is how I want to make decisions for you. You have no family and friends around. Who makes decisions for you? We're stuck. Sometimes we use hospital ethics committees for some more urgent issues. If it's absolutely urgent, we'll do like um, most hospitals have policies how to make decisions for emergent conditions. But a lot of times we have non-emergent issues. What, where, where should we send this person after the hospital? How much aggressive care do they want? And this is often where we start thinking about getting somebody, a conservator or a guardian. You want to briefly talk about what that is? Okay, so um, raise your hand if you've heard the term conservator or guardian before. Okay, so we ha we've heard this before. So this is a legal intervention where someone petitions a court and says, you know, I think this person is unable to manage and make decisions on their own. Um, I think someone else needs to be appointed for them to make those decisions. And so the court, it's kind of a process, but the court will evaluate to see if it's really true that you don't have the ability to make those decisions on your own, and then evaluate who is the best person to make decisions 
decisions on your behalf. Um, and then that person will have the ability to make medical decisions. That person is still required to try their darndest to figure out what you would have wanted. Um, and it's only if they absolutely have no idea what you would have wanted, can they make decisions um, that are in your best interest as opposed to what you would have wanted. Um, so it's a it's a process that we hope to avoid and is is mostly avoidable if if we do our planning ahead of time. Yeah, it's also lengthy process. It's expensive process, yeah. and for most people, when we when we talk to them, they have someone who they would want to make decisions for them if they can't. So making sure that if we do have that preference, it's clearly documented and respected. Mm -hmm. So before we move on, any other questions about who makes decisions for someone if they can't? What happens if a person goes into the hospital and is able to make decisions for themselves? They don't have any of the four Ds. Yeah, the four Ds are really for those people who can't make decisions for themselves. If you can make decisions for yourself and you have the ability to do so, then you should be driving your health care. Now, a whole other talk is whether or not the U.S. healthcare system allows for people to do that because what we often see is there's a huge geography. There's a lot of determinants for what kind of care people get. And it doesn't seem to always just be because that's exactly what their preferences are. Um, maybe people aren't giving the full range of options. Maybe it's framed in different ways. And there's a whole host of social determinants of health, too. But in general, if you can make decisions for yourself, you should be making decisions for yourself. Sometimes you need an advocate, and that's what a good healthcare agent will be, is not just someone. It may be that you can say what you want, but no one's listening to you. Because um, they're very busy, you know, with their own kind of checklist of things they need to get done. They've got to get off to ne the next patient, whatever it might be. Um, so no one's listening to you. So someone needs to grab the nurse or grab the doctor and say, hey, my mom, my brother, my sister, my friend um, really doesn't want this or is confused about what's happening and needs some clarification. Um, because oftentimes a lot of, dec of decision making, the bulk of it is just understanding what the heck is going on and having slowing everyone down enough to say, you know, explain to me what's happening right now and what my options are. Um, and so a good surrogate won't just jump in and make a decision, but will help support you in getting enough information and understanding what the options are. And if you really, if you aren't able to understand your options yourself, will on their own work with a healthcare team to understand the situation and the options. Great. So the question is, will a doctor ever override someone saying the patient is not able, isn't capable of making this decision? And the answer is yes. If the doctor feels like someone isn't capable to make decisions, and that's something that we see all the time. When people get really sick, sometimes they lose the ability to make decisions for themselves because of delirium or other acute medical conditions. Brain isn't working very well. The doctor should be doing what we, we, we call as assessing for capacity or ability to make decisions. Can they think through the process? Can they um, think about what the risks and benefits of this procedures, procedure is and also the alternatives? 
Um, the problem is, is that um, uh, we frequently see, especially when people get really sick, is that they may not have the ability to do those things. And that's when we start relying on other people, those four Ds, to help us think through those decisions. And the last one is, is that the, when we go to conservatorship or guardian, so that legal mechanism, there's now really good oversight of this process. I think the higher up you go in the Ds, kind of the less oversight. Yeah, one, one thing to add, and this is actually a subject for a, a whole other talk, but I feel like at this moment it might be important to raise this, is that your physicians have rights um, under the First Amendment to and in state law to refuse to provide care that they disagree with because of their own personal ethics and values. And I raise that because it's been in the news, um, because of the California aid and dying law. Um, it's actually been around for a very long time. And so something that's important in it, as part, part of your planning is to be conscious of where you're receiving care and to get a good sense of whether you and your physician are on the same page about values and s make sure if there are any points of disagreement, you know about that before um, you're ki it's kind of too late. Um, because you don't want to be negotiating that at the bedside. So that's a whole other talk, but I thought it might be important to raise that. So the question was, um, how is the guardian chosen? Uh, and the concern is we've been hearing a lot in the news lately about abuses within the guardianship system. Uh, so guardianship is what is the word that other states use. We use the term conservatorship in California. Um, but conservators, so there's two types of conservatorship in California. Probate conservatorship is the most common one for aging and dementia. Uh, so someone who um, is just very frail and unable to make decisions on their own, has cognitive impairment, um, any person, a family member, a friend, um, can pet any concerned person can petition the court and request to be made, um, uh, be appointed as conservator for uh, medical decisions, personal care decisions, or finances, or all of the above. Um, there's another process that is for people with psychiatric, major psychiatric illness, and that process can only be initiated uh, by a mental health facility by a doctor. Um, so no random person can initiate that process. Um, so usually for probate conservatorship, that is only a mechanism that we use if someone either hasn't planned or if that planning has failed in some way. And usually planning fails because the person they appointed is no longer available or is too sick on their own and they don't have a backup person. Um, or if that person, a durable, uh, an agent in a durable power of attorney for health care or finances, um, abused their position and someone else needs to be appointed to, to step in. Um, so really conservatorship is a mechanism of last resort. Um, and in California, we have some fairly robust protections in the system. Um, but that isn't to say it, it isn't possible to be abused um, in the system as well. So it's important to, to understand that. 
Um, so the court has to appoint them. So the person will petition the court, will petition a judge. Um, there's usually fairly significant upfront filing fees, um, and they have to post a bond. So it's a pretty serious uh, thing to petition for conservatorship. Um, they also uh, will. There's a court investigator who will go out and. Uh, research quite extensively the person's life, interview them, interview their friends and family. Um, the reports could be like this thick and very detailed, so they certainly don't appoint someone without understanding the situation. You're entitled to a hearing. You're entitled to notice ahead of time. Um, and many people are entitled to notice. So let's say that you are no longer... Um, able to manage your mail on your own and you miss something, other people are meant to be notified as well. So it shouldn't be a surprise that there's going to be a hearing on this question. Um, you're entitled to a lawyer at the hearing. Um, and in the case of conservatorship of the estate, so that's the piece for your finances, the court can appoint one for you if you, if you don't have one. So there's a fair amount of process, but it's still important um, to have a good advocate if you find yourself in uh, in a conservatorship situation. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, which division of the court? So probate conservatorship is through the probate court. So in San Francisco um, Superior Court, it's the probate division on the fourth floor, I think. Is it not true that if you're in the hospital in San Francisco, your physician is going to be replaced by a hospitalist? I'll let Eric take that one. So uh, probably uh, some of us in the room remember the time where you had one doctor, your primary care physician, your family doctor, and they would know you, your rest of the family. They would follow you in the hospital and wherever you went. Uh, that is really no longer the case in the majority of the U.S., including the in San Francisco, is that most hospitals are staffed by physicians, otherwise known as hospitalists, um, that specifically just care for people in the hospital. And uh, I'm going to switch microphones. Uh, and um, uh, sometimes your primary care doctor will talk with those hospitalists. Sometimes they don't. Uh, it's a pretty fragmented healthcare system. Um, there are different models that try to break that cycle of defragmenting that healthcare system. So, um, when your doctor and your outpatient, including like your geriatrician, is seeing you, they may see you both in the inpatient, inpatient and outpatient in the hospital and your clinic. They're still usually cared for by the, a, a, a team in the hospital that manages the day-to-day -day stuff. But sometimes there's that additional provider who comes in and provides some extra help, um, especially guidance about the things that are important to you and some of the complicated issues that arise when people do get admitted, like choosing types of medications or um, making sure they don't get the wrong medications. So, yes, it's true, but it's not just true in San Francisco. It's pretty much true throughout the... United States is in the hospital people are now cared for by different physicians than they're cared for in the clinics. In most settings, again, there's some pretty interesting stuff happening out there that's trying to break that up um, to make it look more like it used to be 50 years ago.
So having a, a, a conversation with your primary care provider will not necessarily get to where Nope. Having uh, a conversation with your primary care provider or your lawyer, even putting an advance directive and then tucking that advance directive in a safe or in your lawyer's office or in your doctor's office, especially if your doctor's not connected to that healthcare system, doesn't really help because those people who are admitting you to the hospital, they're not connected to any of them. And I think that's the real challenge that we face in our healthcare system is that yeah, it's actually really important to do advanced directives. But if you haven't thought about, not if someone needs to make decisions for you, but when that time comes, do you have a preference for who that person is? Because we're going to go through these Ds until we find somebody to make decisions. And it may be somebody who you have no idea who it is, who doesn't know you at all, and can't piece together those things that are important to you because they've never met you. Is there a state registry for advanced directives? Yes, but I don't know that anyone is pulling them. Oh, I'm sorry. The question is, is there a state registry for advanced directives? Um, I think my main answer would be no one accesses it reaches it in the healthcare system. So I think the best strategy for dealing with fragmentation is to have a surrogate who you trust, who knows your wishes, and is someone who will be available to go with you to whatever setting you need to be in, whether it's a hospital or in your home or whatever, and will be the point of continuity for you um, when you're talking to physicians or healthcare teams or EMT who have never met you before. That's why the surrogate is so important. Um, someone you can really count on. Yeah, and I've heard multiple times, oh, who do you want to make decisions for you if you got really sick? Oh, you know, my eldest daughter should be the one making decisions for you. Um, and the person may have strong preferences. Oh, yeah, I would, I would never want to be you know, kept alive on breathing machines. How do you think your eldest daughter would think about that? Oh, my God, she would never go along with that. She would do everything that she can to keep you alive. Okay, maybe your eldest daughter shouldn't be the one making decisions for you if she's not going to respect it. Or maybe what's more important to you is that your eldest daughter feels that more important than being hooked up to machines. I think that's just important to have that discussion about if you're going to be assigning somebody your decision maker as the decision maker when you can't make decisions for yourself, making sure that you're okay with that, how that person would make decisions, and they know about your values, what's important to you, your preferences, if you have them. And this brings us really to our second part of the talk, is really diving a little bit deeper into having these advanced care planning discussions for healthcare. So when, have you guys heard of advanced care planning before? Yeah. How, how would you define it? Great, getting your values understood. Because even when we make very crystal clear preferences about certain interventions, there are so many decisions that need to be made. It could be about where you go after the hospital stay. It could be about certain procedures. It could be about blood transfusions. It could be about being put on a breathing machine or kept alive on a breathing machine or kept alive on a breathing machine more than a week. Um, what those are. Anything else? I'm going to go back to one of our very first comments. It's about an ongoing process. It's not a one-time thing. So when I think of advanced care planning, I love this definition. It's a process that supports adults at any age or any stage of health in understanding and sharing their personal values, values, 
life goals, and preferences regarding future medical care. Notice what I'm not saying is it's about filling out an advanced directive. Because that is a signal. It's a document showing that advanced care planning is happening. But in and of itself, it's not just advanced care planning. It's just a document showing it. And that does need to be a process. And for me, the important part is documenting those values, life goals, and if you have them, preferences. So when we think about advanced care planning, the old way we used to think about it is that there were these legal formalities and procedures like advanced directives um, that we should sign on these standardized forms that are very focused on specific wishes in the event of very specific or sometimes really vague circumstances that happen at the end of life. Uh, It's focused on executing these documents and gives immunity to providers for actually following through with them. The way we think about now, it's more about a process of communication and preparing people to make in-the-moment decisions. So it's less focused on the forms, not saying the forms are not important. They are still very important. But more important is that process of communication. It's focused on goals and values, less focused on individual treatment, not saying that's not important if people have specific preferences, but again, it's about preparation. Legal focus primarily on naming a proxy. So that means assigning someone to make decisions for you when you can't. It's developmental in nature, so it keeps on going. It evolves. An advanced illness tends to tends towards converting goals into a portable plan of care or post form. And I'll talk about what that means, but it basically converts your wishes into active orders if that's what you want with an advanced illness. Can you give an example of a treatment decision versus a goal? Yeah. What do you mean by that? So um, I will give you a couple examples from, so I was seeing patients today. Um, His goal is that um, he could live a little bit longer, knowing that he has a very advanced cancer. Because what's important to him is also being with his family. He values that. He values being independent and being at home. He also values his comfort. He also values his independence. And he's really worried that as this gets worse, that he may be stuck on machines and he doesn't want that to happen. Lots of things. Sometimes they're actually values like, I want to live as long as possible and I want to be comfortable as possible. You can hold both of those things. That's important for us to know. Both of those are important. Some people is, I don't care how comfortable I am. I want to live as long as possible. And other people are, I don't care how long I live. I just want to be comfortable. Great. That helps us decide kind of where we go from here. And that helps your surrogate, your person who's making decisions for you, rather than, oh, you know, um, I never want to have CPR done to me. Okay, you've made that very explicit but I have no idea what to do for the other hundreds of different decisions that we need to make. Answer your question? So when I think about advanced care planning, this comes from one of our other colleagues, Rebecca Sidori here at UCSF, a geriatrician and a palliative care doctor, really thinking about three key key questions. Who can speak for me? It's an if here. 
when I can't. Really like to convert that language. What guidance do I want to give them to prepare them to make decisions when I can't? And what's the best way to communicate this? Not just to my lawyer, not just to my doctor, but even to that random doctor who's going to be admitting me at some random hospital in some place I wasn't expecting to end up at. So those are the things that we should be thinking about. So these are some of the ways that we can do that. So um, maybe you can help me with some of this language, too. So an advanced directive, exactly what is it? An advanced directive in California is a legal document that allows you to do one or two things. You can choose whether you want to do both. It's a durable power of attorney for health care. So that's the piece where you appoint someone to make medical decisions for you. Um, And then the other piece is called a living will. So a living will is where you give um, specific decisions about treatment or goals and values, right? But the living will is the piece where you say what you would want. And the idea is that your power of attorney will read the living will and have some sense. But hopefully, as we've been talking about, they're not just reading your living will. You've been talking about it, and it's been an ongoing conversation. A physician's order for life-sustaining treatment is kind of like a living will on steroids. It's your wishes made actionable immediately, basically. So pulse um, have to be completed with a physician, and they have to be followed by other members of the healthcare team in the system where you're being served. Versus an advanced directive, which is a legal document, Um, which a physician has to read and understand and then translate into a medical order. So it's kind of a fine distinction, but that's that's the gist of it. You can't appoint um, a healthcare decision maker in a pulsed. It's only for um, treatment decisions. Um, Surrogate decision maker is kind of a casual term in California and healthcare proxy. We don't usually use those terms. You'll hear people using those terms, um, but a surrogate decision maker is usually someone who is making decisions without a durable power of attorney in place. So they're the person the healthcare team has turned to to make decisions. They're the next of kin. Um, Same with the healthcare proxy. You want to add anything? And we're driving a little bit more deeper into the differences between advanced directives and posts. So on one side of the screen here, we have the advanced directive. On the other side, we have a post form. You can see your traditional advanced directive is multiple pages long, a very fine print, very hard to read, um, and kind of hard to understand what it actually says. Uh, It's great to do this one with a lawyer because... It's kind of hard to figure out what it actually means for most people. Um, I'm going to talk about one other resource in the future, later on in the slides, of an easy-to-read advanced directive in California. I'll point you to that resource a little later in this talk, but there is one. But this is the traditional California um, standard advanced directive form. On the other side, we have our post form. In real life, it should be printed on a very very pink piece of paper. So when people come to your home or your loved one's home, it's easily visible either at the bedside or on the refrigerator, this bright pink piece of paper. And it's actionable because it tells that EMS crew or your doctors in the emergency room exactly what to do if your heart were to stop beating and kind of what the overall focus of the treatment on. Is it just comfort? 
Is it limited interventions or is it full treatment? And what do you want as far as artificial nutrition and hydration? So when I think about the differences, advanced directive, tailored to kind of what you want, lots of different options. I'm going to be talking again about the easy-to-read advanced directive later on versus the pulse form. You get the standardized bright pink form in the state of California. Uh, advanced directives, you can appoint a decision maker or shared values or treatment goals, or you can do both. Pulse forms, you're not appointing anybody. You're, you're telling them exactly what to do, like if your heart stopped. Um, advanced directive completed by a patient with a witness or a notary. Pulse forms completed by your doctor. Advanced directives, legal document that must be translated, that judgment piece, but to a medical order from EMTs um, or doctors. Uh, and in the pulse form, we have this medical order. It's followed by EMTs. If you get it done, let's say, with your UCSF physician, that order goes with you if you happen to end up at St. Francis, completely different hospital. They're still obliged to follow that order. It's the only order that they're obliged to follow. When do you make a pulse form? So the pulse form, the one over there, uh, is designed for people with serious illness. It's designed for people where you're not thinking about, what would I want in the future? If I got a serious illness, it's, I have one now, and this is what I want people to follow if something were to happen to me now. If you've already had the illness and you're making out. Yes. It's generally designed for those people who have at most a couple years to live. That's where it's originally designed for. And it's designed to say, Let's say my heart were to stop beating. I don't want somebody to try to restart it. Let's say I was ending up in a, um, a hospital. If I don't want to be put on a breathing machine, I'm going to have this order in so they don't put me on one. So you can specify those orders in here. That's not possible in advanced directive because advanced directive is not a medical order. This is a medical order, just like if I wrote an order saying, you know, give this antibiotic four times a day for seven days. And who supplies that? So this is, you can actually Google Pulse Form California, and you can actually see it. Physicians' offices should have Pulse Forms. Uh, hospitals do. Nursing homes do. So they're available, and if they're not, it's easily printable. You can easily print it out. Can I give you a tip? Some um, facilities will put this in a stack of paper and have you fill it out along with other paperwork um, without a good conversation around it. If you see this pink form uh, with your loved one or somebody else, say, being admitted to a nursing home, hit pause and say, I want to talk to a physician about this. You don't have to fill it out. There... um, being encouraged to get people to do advanced care planning, and sometimes it's not done as well as we would like it to be. So if someone hands you a form, it might that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right time to do it. Um, so talk to your physician about it, and you don't have to fill it out. Um, I mean, we encourage you to do planning, but different forms come into play at different times, um, and we want to make sure that you have a good conversation before you fill something out. So what happens when people change their mind? Because people do. 
Because, you know, the amazing thing about humans is that we're incredibly adaptable. So, for instance, if I talk to a bunch of healthy people what their quality of life would be if they ever needed an amputation, they would rate it as pretty low. They may make different decisions. They may say, oh, I would never want that. But when you talk to people after they get an amputation, they actually rate their quality of life as pretty good. We see this, too. There's a lot of ageism in the United States, too. If um, Alex Smith, one of our other researchers, talked to a bunch of pretty fair older adults living in the community here in San Francisco, lots of disability, and asked them how they rated their quality of life, and they rated it pretty good. If you ask a bunch of, uh, a bunch of much younger people who are healthy what they would imagine their quality of life to be if they were in that stage, they would rate it as, I would imagine that would be pretty bad. And that's just the amazing thing about us, is that we're adaptable to new situations. That we sometimes envision a future that we couldn't manage, and we then we manage it okay, sometimes brilliantly. So I think that's the hard part about any advanced care planning is when we're thinking about our future, how much can we actually say, this is what I would absolutely want? And it's hard because we don't know. Some people have very strong preferences and would know, and that doesn't change. For most people, if they're really healthy, it's really hard to envision what what they would want if they get very sick. And that's the important part of a process that this changes. And for people who are really sick, sometimes they change their mind too. And the great thing about these forms, like a post form, you just rip it up. If you can make decisions for yourself, you can still make decisions. This is just a medical order. Your loved one can also rip it up. If you can't make decisions and they're the decision maker, They've just made a decision that that no longer applies. Again, it gets a little trickier now when we're not talking about these medical orders, but we're talking about advanced directives. And Rebecca Sidori, one of our other, again, we mentioned her name a couple times now, uh, geriatricians and palliative care doctors here, she also talks about the importance of granting your loved one leeway or not. So for some people, they know exactly what they want, but they... They don't want anybody to make any other decisions. This is what I would want in these circumstances. I don't want anybody to change that. I'm not going to grant them any leeway. And for other people, it's, yeah, you know what, this is kind of what I want, but if it makes my loved one's life a little bit easier, like they can make whatever decision they want. And they're granting leeway. So some advanced directive forms, including like ours at the VA, grant people leeway or not. So again, these things are, they evolve they change, and they're meant to change. They're not meant to be a one-time thing. Yeah, so I think one of the things um, to think about when you're choosing a surrogate is who is good at dealing with uncertainty and making hard decisions? Who shares your values? Is it more important to you that your family feel okay about whatever decisions are made? Or is it more important to you that a specific kind of outcome or specific goal is met. Um, and then it's also often very helpful for families for your decision maker to be a good collaborator, so someone who can bring the family together. Because even though they have the legal authority, um, 
I don't know, I mean, for any of us who have been involved in these kinds of decisions, the reality on the ground is that everyone's trying to figure it out together, or you hope that everyone's trying to figure it out together, and doing that in a collaborative way. So these are all really practical things to think about when you're thinking about who your, who your surrogate could be. And then your surrogate might be someone who is making decisions not just at the very end of life, um, but for maybe many years, um, if some of us develop dementia or another um, very disabling illness, we might need help for a long period of time. So who's the person that can help you navigate um, decisions that might come up not just at the end of life, but in the years before? You can't have two surrogates in California. Um, you can have one surrogate and a backup person. Um, but you can certainly, you know, when you're talking about your goals and values with folks, you can say, I'm, I'm nominating you, I'm appointing you as the lead decision maker, but it's really important to me that you talk to your brother or sister or your aunt or whomever, and you agree, and it's more important to me that you agree than you, you do what I say in these documents. That's okay. That, you can definitely do that. But again, it's the conversation that's the real important piece here. Yeah, and just to follow up before we move on to our next session uh, section, is that um, every week when I'm on service, I hear from family members who have to make decisions for their loved ones. I never talked about that with him or her. I really don't know. This is really hard. And I think this is one of those things we're not only doing for us, if we got sick, we're also doing this for our loved ones who, were, who's, who are going to make decisions for us, is actually taking a little bit of the weight off their shoulders when those decisions come up. Because you've already talked to them about what's important to you, what your values are, potentially what your preferences are. Um, because we see high rates of distress, PTSD-like symptoms, in individuals who have to make these decisions which is only worsened if they just don't know, have no guiding principles on what's important to you. All right. Is advanced care planning for healthcare, Sarah, enough? Um, no. <laughs> so a lot of us, one of our big goals for healthcare is that we want to stay at home for as long as possible, right? We want to be with our families. Um, we want to be out in the community. We want to do a lot of things. Uh, we don't want to be in a hospital. Um, we don't want to be in a nursing facility if we can help it. Um, but in order to do that, we have to have the resources to make that happen because in the United States, our healthcare system is not free. Um, and so as we age, health decisions are not just about medicine. They're about resources. They're about financial and legal decisions, too. And what's interesting, and, and Eric alluded to this earlier, is that we actually know there's a lot of research that says that social conditions, social environments, are actually more important determinants of health than health care. Sorry, guys that that's kind of the deal, and that resources are a big part of that. Income, economic status, housing stability, all of these kinds of things, our connections with our family and friends, um, these are all 
really, really important to our health. Um, so as a lawyer, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do all of these pieces fit together or how can we get all these pieces fit together so that people can meet their goals. A big part of the financial challenge in aging in the United States is that we don't have a comprehensive financing mechanism for long-term care. So when I say long-term care, I'm not just referring to nursing homes. I'm talking about a whole range of things that we might need, that most of us will need as we age. So you might need help around the house with cooking or cleaning, shopping, managing bills, um, those kinds of things. For people um, with dementia, as it progresses, you might need help with things like bathing or grooming. Um, and those are not things that are paid for by Medicare, right? How many people thought that Medicare paid for long-term care or nursing facilities? We have a sophisticated audience. This is great. You would be... It breaks my heart how many people believe that Medicare will pay for these things and have not planned ahead. A lot of people have not planned ahead for the possibility of paying for long-term care supports. So these long-term care supports are really expensive. Um, Medicare doesn't pay for them. It'll pay for short stays after a hospitalization, but the out-of-pocket costs are still pretty high for a lot of people. There's some local government programs that can chip in if people have a real need. Um, private health insurance doesn't cover it unless you have specific long-term care insurance. So does anyone know who, there's a hint on the slide, who, what system in the United States pays for most long-term care in the United States? Does anyone know? Name of the program? Medicaid. Medicaid. In California, we call it Medi-Cal, right? So um, a lot of people think of Medicaid as that program for the very poor, right? Oh, it provides health insurance for the very poor. And a lot of people don't realize that it's actually a major way that um, as we age or if we have disabilities, it provides for care that we need. Um, so this is something that is important to recognize. A lot of people end up relying on that program who never thought that they would come to rely on the Medicaid program. Um, it also is different from health insurance for younger people. It has its own set of rules. Um, and I raise it because it's important to understand for planning ahead, because certain financial decisions that you can make um, if you need to rely on Medicaid in the future can become a problem for you later. So one thing in thinking about planning for aging as opposed to planning for death is that estate planners think about planning for death. But you want to talk to somebody who knows about planning for your life, right? Someone who understands these kinds of programs. So finding someone who uh, knows disability law or elder law or has is an estate planner with a specific experience in Medicaid is an important thing so that you can understand your rights in that program should you need it um, and to be thinking ahead about it. Um, so before we even get to that issue of how you will come up with resources to, to meet your goals and pay for health care, the, the biggest decision that you will make is who will be my financial caregiver. What are some things that you think about when you think about a good financial caregiver? Trust. Trust. 
Organized. Organized. Great. Ethics. Ethics. Perfect. Details, knows a little bit about the law. Smart. Good. Great. These are all, you guys nailed it. A plus to everyone. So um, who will be the best financial caregiver is someone who is trustworthy, responsible. They were one, the one that always turned their homework in on time. Um, and in this particular case is someone who will use your resources only according to your wishes. That's probably the number one, right? Um, organized, keeps good records, that came up. Will protect you from exploitation. Um, so is someone who will see that someone is trying to sell you a financial product you don't need and will kick that person out the door or will cancel their, uh, your phone calls with them. Um, and importantly, sort of like the healthcare decision maker, it should be someone who works well with others. So a financial caregiver may have a lot of professionals to work with, right? So your banks, your uh, attorney, if you have one, it could be someone who is working with the Medicaid program, the VA, the Social Security Administration. <coughs> it could be a whole lot of professionals that they need to be in touch with and they need to work well with um, in order to make sure that everything is managed successfully for you. So this is the first kind of really key decision that you will make and one that I really encourage you to think long and hard about. Sometimes family members are the best financial caregivers, and sometimes they're not, and that's okay. So we normally think of, you know, oh, how am I going to divide these responsibilities amongst my kids or my other family members? And think about, you know, do I have someone, this is a huge responsibility, is, do I have someone that can really take this on? Um, and if not, maybe turning to a third party that you trust, and sometimes a professional, there are professional fiduciaries that you can hire, sometimes those are good options. Not always, but sometimes. Or a friend, maybe, that you trust a lot. So I would say put a lot of thought into this decision. Um, like healthcare planning, you don't want to be thinking about it as just this form that you kind of fill out and it's kind of boilerplate and I'm going to you know, pick a financial caregiver. It's really an important decision um, and not one to be made lightly. Um, all right, another quiz. Okay, so how you've, you've thought about who you want your financial caregiver to be, or maybe you have a couple of people in mind. How would you go about giving those people legal authority to make decisions for you? Okay, put it in writing. How would you put it in writing? With the assistance of my attorney. Well, <laughs> with the assistance of your attorney. Great, uh-huh. Great. A durable power of attorney for finances is one important mechanism, probably the, the primary mechanism for most people. Um, what, other, what other tools are out there? And then I can help define them a little more. Other tools? Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, so just putting someone on your accounts, that's another strategy for giving them financial caregiving. No, <laughs> they cannot. So the question was, if you have a durable power of attorney um, for finances in place and your agent decides to do something else, 
can they overrule you? And the answer is no. They are supposed to act in the way that you would have wanted them to. And as long as you still have mental capacity, um, you can take away their authority. But it's important to know that whoever they're working with on the other end might not know that they're acting against your wishes because you're not there, right? And so that's why it's important. So we'll, we'll talk about... Um, why it's important to pick someone really trustworthy who who shares your values and goals, because there are ways in which all of these authorities can be abused. And can you actually just define what a durable power of attorney for finances is or a financial power of attorney for Yes. Me? So um, an agent and a durable power of attorney is someone who you've appointed and you've said, I want you to make certain financial and property decisions for me. I'm going to give you those legal authorities. Um, and the amount of authority that you give them depends on what you put in your document. So there are some standard documents out there, but I sort of recommend that you get advice um, and you tailor it to your specific situation um, so that they only get the amount of authority that they need to help you and no more. Um, some authorities have to be explicitly stated, so that means that if you didn't put it in the document, they don't have that authority, and that's a protection. Um, and then when it comes into effect, it can also depend on when you want it to come into effect. You can say, I want it to come into effect right away, or I only want it to come into effect when I am no longer able to make decisions for myself. You can have, unlike a healthcare agent, you can have more than one agent under a durable power of attorney uh, for finances. Um, and some people do that as a way to make sure uh, to prevent against exploitation. So you choose two people and they have to agree on certain decisions before they can act. Um, a downside to that is that it can make it harder to make decisions. It can delay decisions. If someone needs to act quickly, um, which I don't generally recommend in big financial decisions, um, it, can, it can slow things down. Um, you can also put in your document that this is the person who's going to make decisions, but I want them to report every year to a third person. And I want that third person to see what they've been up to and make sure they agree with what's going on. And this is assuming, of course, that you can't do that yourself at some point in the future. Um, you can also grant, so say, so as long as you have the mental ability to do so, you can always revoke the document. You can always say, I'm taking your power away. Um, but in the event you no longer are able to take someone's power away, you can give that power to someone else. You can say, I'm not sure about Anna. I want Eric to kind of be watching over her shoulder. And if Anna doesn't do what I asked her to, I want Eric to tell her she can no longer be my agent. That's something you can do. But you have to tailor your document uh, to actually make that happen. Um, there are things like gifts. So say you want to, uh, say you don't have the ability to make gifts during your lifetime, but you have certain ideas about things that you would want to give people, you can empower your agent to do that. Um, an attorney will want to advise you about, you know, if you think that you're going to need to rely on the Medicaid program in the future, if you give away gifts, it can impact your future Medicaid ability eligibility. So that's why talking to somebody before you give a gifting power away um, is a good idea. So 
The agent under a durable power of attorney is a really big responsibility, but again, you can make it a smaller amount of responsibility if you'd like. But like healthcare planning, you can't always anticipate what kinds of financial decisions are going to come up in the future. So there is some benefit to having someone who has a lot of leeway and a lot of power. Um, in that case, though, you just want to make sure that you have kind of checks and balances in place and you have someone else who's able uh, to watch over. I want to go back to this issue of joint accounts. So when you add somebody, this is another kind of convenient way to give someone the ability to help you manage your finances. When you add someone to your account, you're marrying them for purposes of that account. You both own the money in that account now. So that means even if you talked about it and you said the goal here is that you're going to help me manage my money, if you add someone to the account, it's now theirs too, which means that there can be tax implications, creditors can reach into the account um, to satisfy debts, and they, of course, can withdraw money without your knowledge. So joint accounts can be a, a very helpful strategy if that's your goal. Um, someone who is on a joint account will also inherit that whatever's left in the account after you die. So if that's what you want to do, that's a good strategy. Another strategy is you ask your bank to put someone on a view-only status. So they don't become a co-owner, it's not a joint account, but they can just see it and they can kind of help manage, but they're not a legal co-owner with you. Okay, um, And I also wanted to go back to the giving people your passwords. So giving someone your password doesn't give them any legal authority um, to your accounts. It just gives them access. And so um, a challenge there can be that if they go to a bank or if they go, you know, there's some other decision that needs to be made, they don't have any authority to actually work with that bank or work with that professional um, Let's say you need to work with Medicaid or the VA or somebody else. Um, all they have is access to your accounts. That's it. They don't have any legal authority. So it's still important to make sure that you've thought about who you want to pick and do it formally and give them that document. Yeah. Um, if you have, just real quickly, if you have Social Security or veterans benefits, um, if you lose the ability to manage those benefits on your own, your financial caregiver, and there's some issue with your benefits, your financial caregiver will need to ask the agency to recognize them as your financial caregiver. That won't apply to everybody, but it could apply to some folks, so I just wanted to raise that. Another mechanism is a trustee in a living trust. So a will is a document that says what we want to have happen to our money and property after, after we die. And a living trust can help manage money and property during our lifetime and after we die. So it's sort of both. So it's another mechanism for appointing someone or a couple of people to manage your assets for you. They're usually for people with some property and some higher income. People with lower incomes who don't own property don't usually need a trust. They can just go with a will. Um, trusts can be more expensive to create. Um, and beware of trust mills. So folks who say, I'm going to give you kind of a standard trust. Um, it's like a prepaid package. I would be wary of that and make sure that you um, go through the 
the Canner Legal Referral Service. We'll we'll put up um, some information about that in a minute. Get an attorney who is trusted and expert in this area so that um, you're getting good advice um, and and not um, wasting your money. Um, A living trust is like a power of attorney document in that you can tailor it to how, to how you like. Um, you can have more than one trustee. Um, you can name yourself as the trustee and manage it on your own. There are usually tax reasons that people would like to have a living trust. Um, different reasons to have one. Again, not everyone needs one. So it's important to think about and get advice about if you want one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are many different kinds of trust, uh, but a revocable trust is another name for a living trust. A revocable trust just means that you retain the ability to change your mind later if you want to. And there are other trusts that don't allow you to do that. And there are different reasons for doing both. So we talked a little bit about conservatorship already. So we have the two kinds of conservatorship. One is for health decisions and personal care decisions. The other is for uh, estate. So for folks who haven't chosen financial caregivers and given them legal authority, if the time comes, um, someone may need to petition the court to become conservator of the estate. So conservatorship is needed if we fail to plan. It's also needed if planning fails. So if the person that you chose as your financial agent um, or you put on your joint account or you gave, you know, um, gave the keys to the kingdom, um, if they abuse their position of power, then someone can petition the court and have them removed, um, among other things. <laughs> so those are kind of the two situations in which we would look to conservatorship. Again, it's sort of a last resort. It's not what we would prefer to do. Um, it's an expensive process. But sometimes it is necessary to protect people who have been exploited. So we're going to talk about some concrete resources um, that you can use to understand and address all of the needs that we've talked about here. So the first resource I'm going to be talking about is a website called Prepare for Your Care. The name that kept on popping up for me was Rebecca Sidori through this talk. Again, one of our geriatrics and palliative care experts here at UCSF. And the Division of Geriatrics uh, created this website called Prepare for Your Care. You can just Google Prepare for Your Care or go to www.prepareforyourcare. And it's an easy-to-read website that prepares you, your loved ones, for future decisions. It walks you through five different steps of choosing a medical decision-maker, deciding what matters most in your life, Choosing flexibility for your decision maker, that concept of leeway. Telling others about your wishes. And asking the doctor the right questions. It walks you through those five steps. Easy to use. um, Easy to understand language. Not like that advanced directive that I showed up on the screen. And um, lots of videos. I really love this website. There's actually now a really good evidence that... It increases engagement with advanced care planning, gets more people to do it, and actually results in more people actually filling out advanced directives and has them understand it better. And most people are really satisfied when using it. Best of all, it's free, so you don't have to pay a dime, um, and it's easy to get to. Again, you can just Google Prepare for Your Care. The other part, and I forgot to include a slide picture of this, you can actually go to this website. And in any 50 state in in the U.S., 
There is an easy-to-read advanced directive for that state on this website in both English and Spanish. So, as opposed to the advanced directive that I showed up the screen, which I can't even read, this one, easy-to-read language with some pictures, easy to understand, and if you're in California, there's a California-specific advanced directive. If you're in any of the other 50 states, there's one in both English and Spanish, and it's free to download and use. So that's our first uh, resource. Again, it's called Prepare for Your Care, um, and um, really good evidence that it does a great job of motivating people to do advanced care planning. The second one um, is uh, another website. You can Google uh, Plan for Your Lifespan, um, and this basically walks through not just what you would want if you got very ill, but this walks you through what would I want with um, the person who created this website is in the last 10 or 20 years of life. How do I think about things? If, if I got hospitalized, what are the important questions I should be asking myself? What are the important questions I should be asking where would I want to go afterwards? How should I think about falls or memory loss or talking to others or finances? This walks you through those different steps. Last one. Um, so resources for financial planning, I really recommend the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's a federal agency that is a watchdog for consumers, and they have a section of their website dedicated to older consumers. They also have sections focusing on veterans and, uh, and, uh, and low-income folks, homeowners. However you kind of come at the, these financial issues, there's there's probably a resource for you. The series I really recommend for financial caregivers is called Managing Someone Else's Money. It's a booklet. They'll mail it to you for free, or you can download it from the internet, or you can just read it on the internet, and it kind of walks you through um, generally what the role is um, of a financial caregiver under different legal authorities and things that you should be aware of. Um, they're not state-specific, and so state law can change a little bit, so it's not a substitute for legal advice, but it's a really great starting place to kind of familiarize yourself with some of these issues. And then to find legal assistance, as I mentioned before, you want to, um, an estate planner is usually what we think about in legal planning, but you want to make sure that the person you're talking to has some familiarity with issues of aging and disability specifically, and generally that means Medicaid. And so you want to make sure that this person has some facility with a Medicaid program. Even if you don't end up needing the Medicaid program, it's good to have somebody who kind of has it on their radar. So if you're low to moderate income, you can access free or low-cost services through lawhelpcalifornia.org. So the link is up there. Um, if you're moderate to high income or you own any real property, it would be a good idea to go through the Canner Elder Law Referral Service. Um, so the link is up there. So Canner is a nonprofit law firm uh, here in San Francisco that has consumer resources, and they run this attorney referral service uh, statewide. So to, no matter where you live in California, you can uh, get referred to an attorney. And I think that's it. So we have three minutes left if we have any more questions. Yeah. So the question is, and correct me if I'm wrong, what it sounded like before was that your, your doctor is, may not be the same person as the person that's in the hospital. And your doctor may have an advanced directive, but that doesn't follow them in the hospital. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, so when you're, when you're dealing with an emergency in most healthcare systems, you're dealing with new doctors in the emergency room that are not your primary care doctor. You're dealing then, once you get admitted from the emergency room, new doctors in the hospital. And those doctors sometimes rotate day by day as well in a hospitalist system. So you're dealing with a variety of different doctors and different hospital teams. Um, it's important that they know what's important to you. If you can't make decisions, it's important that, that they know that. An advanced directive is a tool to make sure that happens. Your primary care doctor can also be an important tool. Having a primary care doctor you trust who also, if you get sick, also interacts with that hospital team, I think is an important part. I think we don't see a lot of that, but I think it's a growing important part of kind of defragmenting our healthcare system. I think all of these are pieces to make sure that your wishes and values are preserved. And I think it goes to the extreme of if you're absolutely sure you have an advanced illness this is, and you're really worried, let's say you, you don't want CPR, that's where those pulse forms come in. So it's a piece of this puzzle of, of making sure your wishes are respected throughout this healthcare system in a healthcare system that's not really well designed to make sure that all of these pieces fit together. No, I think that's the, so. The truth is that when we think about um, how people die now versus how they died 50 years ago, it's very different. 50 years ago, people got very, very sick. It was rather quick, maybe 70 years ago. And people didn't live years and years and decades with really serious illness often. Now, when we think about dying in the U.S., and the rest of the world, um, is that it's often a process of years, as Sarah said before. This is oftentimes people are dealing with multiple serious illnesses, sometimes issues like dementia that progress over many years, sometimes it's heart failure. And our system does a really good job of actually making sure very less people are dying in the hospital nowadays than they were 20 years ago. But our system also does this process of churning people through the system very fast, especially near the end of life. So they get admitted, discharge, admitted, discharge, admitted, discharge. Um, uh, it's just the way the system is currently designed. Again, there's, there's lots of great examples of, of, of like the Onlock program here, the PACE program, trying to actually make sure that doctors are communicating with hospitals and creating ways that we can care for people throughout the aging process. Um, but again, in, in most, most healthcare systems right now, that's, that's not the case. So I don't want to make it seem like um, uh, you get admitted to hospital, you're, 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 you're going to die, or you're going to get admitted to the hospital, and your wishes are not going to be respected. I think that the key is, is that we need to be involved in making sure that people know our wishes, and not just one person, not just your attorney, not just your primary care doctor, but these different forms are filled out, and that you have somebody else to advocate for you, your wishes, if you can't. Because that's the reality of our healthcare system, is everything has to work perfectly <laughs> for your advanced directive to follow with you. And it often doesn't happen. So how can we make sure that multiple ways to make sure your preferences or wishes are respected? Thank you, guys. And we'll see you around the 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.